Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast. Last time, we looked at daily life in Viking Age Scandinavia, mostly based on what archaeologists have been able to dig up and analyze. This time, we'll look at the literary record about the Viking Age. I really wish I could say from the Viking Age, but unfortunately, even though the Vikings had a rich literary tradition, most of the surviving written sources were penned after the Viking Age is conventionally considered to have ended and the Middle Ages begun. This inconvenient circumstance poses some problems and dilemmas that we can't get around. For instance, how reliable are these sources? Do they faithfully describe Viking Age society? Or is much of it just a reflection of later centuries, superimposed on the Viking Age? These are all very good questions. Sadly, we don't have definitive answers to any of them. We do have some written sources, though. Runic inscriptions on various stone slabs, mostly. They pose their own set of challenges. Like, how accurately can we date them? Also, these texts tend to be brief and rather repetitive, but I guess you have to work with the sources you got. So, without any further ado, let's get to it. Episode 17, Sagas and Runes. So what did the Viking Age Scandinavians do when the working day was done? Mind you, in the winter, that was pretty early in the day, since uh, there are precious few hours of daylight that far north in midwinter. Did they read? Not really. We don't know how widespread literacy was, but even if they all knew how to read and write, which is very unlikely, Lighting conditions were definitely not favorable. If it was too dark to work, it was probably too dark to read as well. So in those days, oral traditions were very important, and people who knew sagas and poems by heart were highly esteemed members of their community. Not to mention popular companions during long dark winter nights, when they could entertain with stories to make the time go faster. Only with Christianity, modern writing using the Latin alphabet, as well as the Latin language, reached Scandinavia. That's also when the sagas, a word that ironically refers to what's said, were first written down. But that doesn't mean that pre-Christian Scandinavia was a completely illiterate culture. Before Christian missionaries brought the characters of the Latin alphabet used today, Scandinavians wrote with runes. They used an alphabet called the Futhark, named after the first six letters in the row of runes. The older Futhark had 24 characters and was probably based on the Greek or Latin alphabet. It is very old, and it might have reached southern Scandinavia already in the 2nd or 3rd century. In the Viking Age, the younger Futhark, with only 16 characters, was in use. Most runic inscriptions that survive in Scandinavia today use this younger Futhark instead of the older style. The way these letters look is most likely a reflection of the fact that they were carved into various materials and not written on a smooth surface. That's why they have rough edges and few curved lines. Scandinavians probably carved runes into all kinds of materials, but what remains are mostly texts carved into stone. The oldest runic inscription we know of is 1,800 years old, more or less, the so-called Kilverstone from the island of Gotland. But that's a bit of an outlier. Only from the 10th century onward do we have plenty of runestones. And here and there, where the conditions have been favorable, we even have runes carved into other materials that have survived. Thanks to this, we know that Viking Age Scandinavians wrote on leather, bark, 
wood and other materials, and judging by the wide range of content on much of these texts, anything from love letters to calendars or contracts of purchase, we can assume that there was quite a lot of writing going on at the time. But sadly, precious little of it has remained intact until our time. So what we're left with, in terms of surviving runic inscriptions, is mostly runestones. Some 200 runestones have been found in Denmark, just over 50 in Norway, but more than 1,800 in Sweden. Around Uppsala, an important religious centre in the Viking Age, there is a high concentration of these runestones. No runestones have been found in Iceland. I can't help thinking that that's weird, since we have a handful of runestones from the Faroe Islands, and even one from Greenland, but nothing from Iceland. At least not so far. Maybe something will turn up if we keep looking. You never know. Content-wise, most of the runestones are memorials to important men and about 10% of these stones were raised in memory of Vikings who died while on campaigns abroad. But occasionally, stones were raised to commemorate women as well, mostly recalled as good and beloved wives, mothers or sisters. It wasn't easy or cheap to put up a runestone, so it's not surprising that the texts on them also tend to mention who paid for them. Usually, the stones were commissioned by close family members of the person to whom the stone was dedicated, but you could erect a stone to glorify yourself if you had enough money and felt the urge to brag. One Viking Age douche was Jarlabrink Ingefastson, who put up no less than 10 stones on his vast estate in the Stockholm area, proclaiming how rich he was, what a skillful builder he was, and how much land he owned. One typical example of a runestone erected in memory of Vikings who fell on a raid abroad is found at Gripsholm, also in Sweden. This stone, commemorating warriors who joined the failed expedition of Ingvar the Far-Traveled that we've talked about before, reads They went manfully far away after gold, and eastwards gave the eagle food. They died down south in Serkland. Much like the temples and statues of ancient Greece, the runestones were originally richly painted, but with time the paint disappeared. When restoring runestones, archaeologists will usually fill in the inscriptions with red paint, but leave the rest of the stone untouched. The text is usually arranged inside a band, which itself often has the shape of a dragon, a serpent or some other animal. From the sagas, we know that also shields and tapestries in the great halls were decorated with similar motifs, but almost nothing of that has survived, unfortunately. The runic inscriptions are very valuable as sources of information, but not necessarily the kind of information the guy who wrote them intended. That is, who went where, how brave and successful he was, and how heroic his death was. Instead, these terse texts, almost the only surviving contemporary records written by Scandinavians themselves, teach us about the place names, names of people, how the language developed over time, changes in names, the spreading of Christianity, who married who, etc. For instance, by studying runestones, we can find out where the Vikings went, since these uh, monuments often mention the places like Gordariki, Grekland, that is Greece, Serkland, Jorsala, Jerusalem, and even Vinland. The so-called Varangian runestones, or Greece runestones, were erected either in memory of Vikings who went to join the Varangian guard in Miklagord and fell during their Byzantine service, or by surviving veterans of the guard after their triumphant return home with lots of gold and entertaining stories. The oldest of these Greece runestones has been dated to sometime before the year 1015. There are even four runestones known as the Italy runestones, 
commemorating members of the Varangian Guard who died while on campaign in southern Italy on behalf of the Emperor. Stones decorated with images from the Old Norse mythology have been found here and there as well. Such stones are extra interesting because they seem to confirm later written records about the Old Norse gods. The most frequently depicted god is Thor, sometimes fishing and catching the Midgard serpent. Other rune stones show Odin, the king of the gods, on his eight-legged horse Sleipnir. One of the most popular myths as far as runestone illustrations are concerned was the one about Sigurd the dragon slayer. Sigurd is depicted on several stones. The most famous one is found in Ramsund in Sweden. As is often the case, the inscription of the stone has nothing to do with the legend about Sigurd. Instead, it describes the building of a nearby bridge, an important event in Viking Age Scandinavia, worthy of a runestone. The imagery shows Sigurd sitting in a pit, thrusting his sword into the heart of Fafnir the dragon, whose body makes up the band on which the runes are inscribed. Another frequently depicted myth is that of Ragnarök. The moment when the wolf Fenrir attacks Odin is depicted on a well-preserved runestone in Ledberg in southeastern Sweden, as well as on a runestone on the Isle of Man in the Irish Sea. Also, the myth about Baldur's death is depicted on several runestones, such as on the Hunestad stone on the west coast of present-day Sweden. There, the giantess Hurrokin is shown riding on her wolf on the way to push Baldur's ship Ringhorni out to sea. With the arrival of Christianity to Scandinavia, Christian terminology and imagery replaced the old pagan symbols and texts on the runestones. Instead of stating that the dead went to Valhalla, the later stones talk about reaching paradise, and invocations of Odin, Thor and other gods were replaced by Saint Michael, Christ, the Virgin Mary and God. As the commander of the heavenly armies in Christian tradition, Saint Michael took over Odin's role as leading the dead to light and glory after death. St. Michael is mentioned in runestones in Swedish Upland, Danish Lolland, as well as on the islands of Gotland and Bornholm in the Baltic Sea. The language used in these runic inscriptions is Old Norse. During the Viking Age, and even later, the Scandinavians spoke more or less the same language, sometimes called the Danish tongue by the Anglo-Saxons. The major difference in these languages was between Eastern and Western dialects. The Eastern dialect was spoken in Sweden and in Denmark, including northern and eastern England during the Danelaw, and the western one in Norway and on the North Atlantic islands. This means that, linguistically speaking, modern Swedish is closer to Danish than to Norwegian, which might be hard to believe for most Swedish and Norwegian speakers, who struggle to understand spoken Danish, but who usually have little trouble understanding each other. Obviously, the Finns and the Sami had their own languages that were completely different from Old Norse. They also had a completely different literary tradition, separate from what we're talking about here today. Much of our knowledge and understanding of Viking Age Scandinavian literature is based on the work of one man, Snorri Sturluson. He was born in Iceland into a rich and powerful family called the Sturlinger family in the year 1179. For a big chunk of his life, which ended quite abruptly in 1241, he was at the center of Icelandic politics. He was elected law speaker at the Althing, the most prestigious of offices in Iceland, not only once, but twice. But even though he was an important person in Icelandic politics, that's not the subject for today's episode. We'll have reason to return to Snorri's political life and death in a future episode, though. 
He's relevant for today's episode, thanks to his central position in preserving much of what remains of Viking Age Scandinavian literature and religion, thanks to his books The Prose Edda and The Heimskringla. There is even a theory that Snorri Sturluson wrote Ale Saga, one of the best known of the sagas of the Icelanders, but there's no consensus on that particular point. If we start by looking at the Edda, it should be noted right off the bat that there are in fact two Eddas, the Elder and the Younger Edda. Confusingly, the Younger Edda, the one attributed to Snorri, was known before the Elder Edda, so for the longest time it wasn't known as the Younger Edda at all, just the Edda. The two books are also sometimes called the Poetic and the Prose Edda, the latter being Snorri's. The Prose Edda functions as a kind of introduction to Old Norse myth and poetry, and is assumed to have been written in the year 1220 or thereabout. Almost everything we know about Old Norse mythology and religion stems from this book, so its importance as a window into the pre-Christian Scandinavian worldview can hardly be overstated. With that said, it's important to keep in mind that the Prose Edda was written, or at least compiled, at a time when Scandinavia had already been Christianized, and so it's not a first-hand account of what the Vikings believed, even though it does include or quote older material that is likely to originate from the pre-Christian era. So, traditionally, Snorri Sturluson is thought to have written the Prose Edda, or at the very least compiled and edited the manuscript. The reason Snorri is thought to have written it is that it actually says so in one of the seven manuscripts of the text that have survived to this day. In the early 14th century manuscript called Codex Upsaliensis, there's a paragraph that says, This book is called Edda. Snorri Sturluson has compiled it in the manner in which it is arranged here. Some scholars have pointed out that this doesn't sound like Snorri actually wrote the whole thing, only that he put it together. They also like to point out that all the seven surviving manuscripts were written down at least half a century after Snorri's death. In addition, all these manuscripts differ from each other quite a bit, meaning that whatever Snorri's involvement in the creation of the Prosedda, we might not have a surviving copy of the book as he wrote it. But there are bits of the Edda, most notably the last section, called Hottatol, that probably were penned by Snorri. The Prose Edda is divided into four sections. The first one of these is called the Prologue. It introduces the Old Norse gods to the readers, who, as I mentioned a moment ago, were all Christian at the time of Snorri Sturluson. Snorri presents the gods as historical figures, noteworthy, sure, but human and not divine. In Snorri's version of events, the stories of these people were told and retold from generation to generation, and the stories slowly evolved from memory to myth. In the end, the Scandinavians started to worship these people as gods. Snorri traces their origin back to Troy, claiming that King Priam, who was king of Troy during the Trojan War, was the grandfather of a boy called Tror, but whom the Scandinavians called Thor. The boy grew up and married a woman named Sibyl, a name the Scandinavians pronounced as Sif. Snorri then rattles off a long list of descendants until he gets to a guy called Vodin, whom the Scandinavians called Odin. This Odin arrived in Saxland, basically modern-day Germany, where he set up a kingdom. Odin gave Saxland to three of his sons, and they established the ruling dynasties of the Franks. Odin himself moved north. First, he made his son Skjöldr king of Denmark, establishing the legendary Skjölding dynasty there. Then he moved on to Sweden, and there he and his entourage were greeted as Æsir by the Swedish king Gylfi, because they came from Asia, 
And this, Snorri explains, is where the Old Norse word for the gods, the Aesir, comes from. In Sweden, Odin founded a Trojan colony, which became the town of Sigtuna. And later, Odin's son Yngvi became the king of Sweden, the first of the Yngling dynasty. Finally, Odin moved on to Norway, where he made his son Seiminger king. Obviously, we don't know for sure why Snorri chose to add this prologue to the Prosedda. Maybe he believed it to be true, or maybe he did so in order to avoid criticism from the church for writing and spreading knowledge about the old pagan pre-Christian gods, something that could have been dangerous if done incorrectly in the deeply pious Middle Ages where the church was an important power player. The second section of the Prosedda is the Gilfaginning, which means the tricking of Gilfi or the deluding of Gilfi. The Gilfi in question is the very same king of Sweden that Snorri claimed welcomed Odin to his kingdom. According to Gilfaginning, King Gilfi is tricked by a goddess and loses a big chunk of his kingdom to her. For obvious reasons, this annoys him, and he starts to suspect that the power of the Aesir, that is the Old Norse gods, is all just magic and tricks. So he sets out on a journey to Asgard, the home of the gods, to find out more. He arrives at a great hall, where he is introduced to three mysterious men called High, Justice High, and Third. As so often happens in these sagas, Gilfi has to prove his wisdom by asking questions. And he asks questions that touch on some fundamental elements of Old Norse mythology, including the creation and destruction of the world. In the end, Gilfi returns to his kingdom, where he tells people what he's learned from High, Justice High, and Third. And in that way, the Old Norse religion is founded. We'll get deeper into the details of Gilfaginning in one of the coming episodes, when we'll talk more about Old Norse religion. The third section of the Prosedda is called Skoldskaparmål, which can be translated as the language of poetry. It's structured as a dialogue between Egir, a, a personification of the sea, who also happens to be a master ale-brewer, and Bragi, the god of poetry. Their discussion on mythology and poetry is probably best known for its explanations of some common kennings. A kenning is basically a description of a thing, a person, or a phenomenon using other words. They were very popular in Viking Age literature, and the sagas are full of them. For instance, a ship could be described as a sea steed, and a warrior could be a destroyer of eagles' hunger, because a warrior kills people, and that way he provides food for the eagles that eat the corpses of the slain. This, in turn, destroys the bird's hunger. Most kennings consisted of two or three words, but some could be quite elaborate. Kennings of as much as seven words have been found, so no wonder they needed the cheat sheet like the Skoldskaparmål. The last section of the Prosedda is the so-called Hottatal that I mentioned before, the one we're fairly certain that Snorri actually wrote himself. In this section, which deals with prosody, Snorri gives examples of different forms of verse used by the ancient Scandinavian poets, mostly by making up his own example, but using their rules. Unlike later poetry, End rhymes weren't particularly important to Viking Age poets. Instead, they constructed their verses based on the number of syllables per line, assonance, consonance, and alliteration. Since the Hotatol is more technical in nature and doesn't contain as any cool stories about gods and giants, it's not as accessible and far less read than the other parts of the Prosedda, especially Gilfaginning, which is definitely the section of the Edda that is best known today. The second important book credited to Snorri Sturluson is the Heimskringla. Unlike the Prose Edda, the Heimskringla is supposed to be a historical tract 
documenting the lives and deeds of the earliest kings of Sweden and Norway. Scholars estimate that it was written in Iceland around the year 1230, so a few years after the Prose Edda. Much like the Prose Edda, Heimskringla isn't the name Snorri gave the text. Instead, it first appears as the title of the book when a Swedish and Latin translation was published in Stockholm in 1697. The name is not completely random though, it comes from the first two words of the manuscript, Kringla Heimsins, or the Circle of the World. That 1697 edition also contained the first printed version of the text in the Old Norse original. Even though it's clear that Snorri used several existing sources when writing the Heimskringla, for instance uh, Mörkingskina, who he copied more or less verbatim when describing the years 1030 to 1177, and the Rygjastykki, which unfortunately has been lost since Snorri's days, the composition of the Heimskringla as a whole is no doubt Snorri's own work. He uses the prologue of the Heimskringla to stress the importance of source criticism and points out that some of the things he's relating in the work might not be documented, but that he includes it anyway since, quote, Even though we can't ascertain the truth of these sagas, we know that the ancients held them to be true, end quote. He might have added this caveat because even his contemporaries, who are slightly more gullible than the average reader today, might have been skeptical to parts of his so-called history. The first part of the Heimskringla is the Ynglinga saga. Here Snorri returns to the topic of how Odin and his men arrived in Scandinavia and made themselves lords of the land. But the details are slightly different from the story in the prologue of the Prozeda. In this version of events, the Aesir, led by Odin, had to leave their ancestral homeland east of the river Don due to military pressure from the Constantinople. They travelled through Gordariki and Saxland until they came to Sweden. There, Odin's son Frey, later identified as a god by the Scandinavians, established the royal house of Ynglings, with his seat of power at Uppsala, north of present-day Stockholm. Later, descendants of this house would move to Norway and become the ancestors of Harald Fairhair, the first king of Norway, whose story we'll get into in more detail in a future episode. Heimskringla then goes on to document the lives of all the kings of Norway until the death of the pretender Eystein Mela in 1177. The book also contains references to important events in Scandinavian history during the Viking Age and the early Middle Ages, including tales of journeys all over Europe and even a crusade to the Holy Land undertaken by King Sigurd the Crusader. The saga of another king with religious interests, Saint Olaf, takes up about a third of the whole Heimskringla. The earliest surviving part of the book comes from this saga and is dated to approximately 1260, so only about 20 years after Snorri's death. Unfortunately, most of that manuscript was destroyed in a fire in 1728, but the single page that does remain is today housed in the National Library in Reykjavik. We'll have reason to return to St. Olaf and several of the other kings chronicled in the Heimskringla in future episodes. Before Snorri Sturluson sat down to write this tome, there were several sagas describing the lives of the kings of Norway, but Heimskringla soon became the gold standard among learned men in Scandinavia. After its publication, no other independent work of substance on the topic were ever written. Instead, Later authors would use Heimskringla and add their own extensions here and there, but Snorri's account was always the basis. The book would once again gain importance and fame in the 19th century during the era of nationalism. 
Norwegian nationalists striving to re-establish an independent Norway would point to Heimskringla to glorify the ancient past of their homeland. The book became very popular and widely read in Norway at this time, and in the year 1900, when the struggle for independence was reaching fever pitch, the Norwegian parliament, the Storting, subsidized the publication of a modern translation of Heimskringla in order to make the text accessible to as many Norwegians as possible, both in terms of language and price. But parallel to its increasing popularity in broader circles and among nationalist politicians, historians were growing increasingly skeptical to the veracity of Snorri's version of events. Two historians and brothers, Lauritz and Kurt Webel from Lund University, incidentally my own alma mater, pioneered the introduction of critical reading of old sources in Scandinavian historiography. They showed that most of the Heimskringla was either fiction or impossible to prove, and therefore should be regarded as fiction. And the Webels were not alone. Referencing Leopold von Ranke, the German historian who championed source-based history, the Norwegian historian Edvard Bull concluded that we have to give up all illusions that Snorri's mighty epic bears any deeper resemblance to what actually happened. Following in the footsteps of the Webels and Edvard Bull, modern historians tend to view Heimskringla more as a reflection of 13th century Norway and Iceland than the times it claims to describe. But old habits die hard, and Heimskringla still influences the way the early history of Norway is perceived and understood. Even though few people today accept its sagas of the early Norwegian kings uncritically, it's still read, not least thanks to its literary qualities. Because even though it might be a work of fiction more than history, it's still an entertaining book. At this point, it should be noted that Snorri Sturluson wasn't the only one who wrote sagas of enduring literary quality. Far from it. In the 13th and 14th centuries, so starting in Snorri's own lifetime, many Icelandic sagas, known as the family sagas, were recorded by authors whose names unfortunately are unknown to us today. These sagas describe events that happened in Iceland and some other places the Icelanders visited during the so-called Saga Age. This age started with the settlement of Iceland in the year 870 and ended in the middle of the 11th century when the first bishop of Iceland established a church in Skolaholt in the southwestern part of the country. The family sagas tend to be epic histories spanning over several generations and describing the tough lives of the first settlers of Iceland and their descendants. They paint a picture of romance, violence, heroism and treachery, and all other things that people want to hear about. They also convey some religious, political, social, cultural and geographical information by the by. As I mentioned before, the authors of these sagas are unknown to us today, but Snorri Sturluson is believed to maybe have written one of the more prominent ones, Ale Saga. Incidentally, Ale was one of Snorri Sturluson's ancestors. Some of the other still widely read sagas include Njal Saga, Laxdala Saga, and the Saga of Eric the Red. All good sagas that you really should read if you haven't already. If you're interested in learning more about the sagas, I strongly encourage you to check out the Saga Thing podcast, where John and Andy, two bearded professors of medieval literature, put the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. It's highly entertaining. I can't recommend it enough. Meanwhile, on this show... Next time, we'll delve deeper into Snorri Sturluson's Prose Edda and look at the Viking religion. We'll talk about the Old Norse mythology, but we'll also try to answer questions like 
What did the pre-Christian Scandinavians believe and how did they actually practice their religion? I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please go and recommend it to all your friends. Please also consider leaving a favorable review and perhaps a constellation of stars on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page at facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. If you like and follow the page, you'll be exposed to more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. In case you're not really a Facebook person, but rather one of the Twitterati, then by all means do follow me on Twitter at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. You can get in touch with me that way as well. I look forward to hearing from you.